Um, last week, we did a lot of cultural work, contextual work. We, we asked the question, why is it so hard to believe in predestination? And all I wanted to do there was to give us new lenses on how to approach this topic. Um, this week, what I want to do is get into... There are two different ways of doing theology. There's what's called systematic theology, and there's biblical theology. Systematic theology is essentially taking the scriptures and organizing, organizing what we find in the scriptures into a system of doctrine. Okay? So, um, like a famous systematic uh, doctrine book would be um, Louis Burkhoff's book, Systematic Theology, to where you could say, like, what is the doctrine on the omnipotence of God? And then he gives, based upon all the survey of Scripture, here, here's, here's what the Bible tells us about his omnipotence. Here's what the Bible tells us about his omniscience. And so it kind of systematizes our theology. That's one way of doing theology. Um, the other way of doing theology is, is what's called just biblical theology. And, what, and that's more exegetical work, um, where you, you approach the Scriptures... And you're not necessarily trying to do a survey of the scriptures and fit it all together in nice, neat categories. You just come at the scriptures and see what they reveal. And both have their strengths and both have their weaknesses. What I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a systematic teaching of, of this doctrine. That's this week. And then next week, um, we're going to go the more biblical route. We're going to do kind of a biblical uh, theology of this doctrine. Um, so systematic this week, where I'm going to go through the famous acronym of TULIP and, um, and, and, and give you the history behind that and, and go through that and explain it. And then next week, I'm choosing a passage that is, to me, the bedrock of, uh, of this doctrine, Romans 9. And I'm going to go get into Romans 9, and we're just going to kind of exegete that passage. Um, today, my very, very, very ambitious goal is to get through the five points of Calvinism. And I'm telling you up front... Um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. So don't worry if I don't get through all of them. We'll pick up, if I don't get through all of them, we're going to pick up where we left off next week. The Fellowship Hall has a clock there. I don't have a clock. So your job is to start waving at me if it's time for me to give the call to worship. And uh, yeah, uh, let's see. Give me till, when's the bell go off? 11? Give me five extra minutes. 11.05, stop me if I'm still talking. I'll see if I can get through it. Okay. Systematic theology has its limits. And I want to start by prefacing it with that. Um, and, and here's its limit. It's way too clean. Way too clean. And what, what I mean by that is systematic theology and systematic theologians. Somebody like an R.C. Sproul is a big-time systematic theologian. And, and, and they're passionate about systematics, and they write about systematics, and they tend to be able to, they're gifted to make, make, make do, higher doctrines of God um, more logic and, and all that stuff. But the error of it is that um, they take it too far, and they turn, they turn the theology and doctrine into a system that's clean that we can nice, neatly understand. And we're ne systematics is never meant to go that far. Last week, I talked about how at the end of the day, this is going to end in mystery. God is sovereign and man is free. And those work together. And I can't clean that up. And systematic theology that tries to clean that up, that tries to be able to express the things of God in a nice, neat manner where there's no more questions left on the table is bad theology. Okay? 
So if you ever come across a theologian who basically has all the answers to every question you have, they are a bad theologian. And we have some of those in our tradition. We really do. Um, I'm not saying Sproul is one of those, but, but we do have some of those in our tradition. Theology is meant to give expression to mystery, not to resolve mystery. This is going to end in mystery, but hopefully you'll have a better expression of the mysteries of God. You'll have a fuller understanding of the mysteries of God. And so that's my goal today, is to go through it systematically. Let me tell you a background on how this came to be. In the 16th century, there was a figure of the Reformation called Jacobus Arminius. Um, it was an unfortunate name who came up with an unfortunate theology. Um, he had sharp disagreements with Reformed theology, particularly Reformed view of salvation. His theology came to be known as Arminian theology, after his name Arminius, Arminian theology. And after his death, um, a group of his followers called the Remonstrants um, came up with five articles of disagreement that expressed their disagreements with Reformed theology's view of salvation, essentially Calvinism, although there was no such thing as Calvin's writings were not systematized into Calvinism at the time. Um, they had disagreements with the predominant theology of the Reformation salvation. Um, now, it's important to understand that these articles were very unconventional. These five articles were very unconventional and novel ideas that were viewed as heretical by the church at the time. Um, they are assumed ideas of our church in our day, and we talked a lot about this last week, how, the culture, how much the culture affects this. What Arminius was coming up with was outlandish, novel, and even some would say heretical ideas of that day, but in our day, they're kind of the normal views. Um, and, 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 you know... <laughs> That says, something to, that says something to just the history of all this, which I, I spoke of um, last, last week, so I'm not going to get much into this. So in response, to, um, in response to Arminianism, the Synod of Dort was held in 1618. And this was a gathering, um, and from that gathering we have what's called the Canons of Dort, which became known as the Five Points of Calvinism. So what happened is they took those five points of disagreement, they held a council and came out with their five points to kind of combat the five points of Arminianism. And that became the five points of Calvinism. So the five points of Calvinism were actually not the first five points. They were in response to Arminianism. The Canons of Dort became the standard understanding of salvation until, and this goes back to our discussion last week, until Arminian theology was resurrected and eventually normalized by John Wesley and um, the Methodist movement in our culture. Um, Wesley um, kind of brought a resurgence of Arminian theology, and, but up until that point, the five points of Calvinism was the standard view of theology for all of the church. So the five points are historically accepted by the Protestant church as an accurate description of soteriology, a theology of salvation. But I recognize in our context, Arminianism is the standard soteriology. Um, what are those five points? Here's what you need to know about them. Um, what they do, and again, this is, this is the failures of systematic theology, is they flow logically through um, the, the order of salvation, I guess you could say. In other words, it is a logical expression of how God saves man. 
And if any of those points, I know there are people who say, I'm a four-point Calvinist, I'm a three-point Calvinist or whatever, um, and, and you might be here um, in this meeting and, and um, you know, I hope this doesn't offend you, but, but, but um, any of those points removed, the whole system falls apart. Um, they, they logically build upon each other, and I'm going to show you how that is as we go through them. So there are five points of Calvinism. It is an acronym, TULIP. TULIP. And, um, and that stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. What I want to do is I want to go through each of those... And um, I'm going to just throw passages of Scripture at you so you can see how the Scriptures do indeed teach these. We're going to go more in-depth in Scripture next week. But I'm just going to kind of quickly go through some passages so you can see that the Scriptures do indeed teach these things. And then I'll add a brief comment to each one. So let's start with here. Total depravity. Now, if this is true, here's the thing about Calvinism. If this is true, the rest of it has to be true. And I'll show you how that works out. Um, let's just go through some passages. What, how, does the vi- how does the Bible view mankind? Genesis 6-5. This, um, this is the first vision of humanity post-fall that we have from God. The first expression of God, what God sees on the earth after the fall. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. God saw the wickedness of man and thought and saw that every imagination, every thought of the heart was only evil all the time. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart, that's speaking to the, the, the heart is the, is the Bible's view of the soul, but who you are fundamentally as a person. The heart, who you are, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. John 6, 44, we'll go to the New Testament. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We're going to use that verse on several of these points, but the point with total depravity is that you can't come to God unless God initiates and does something. We'll explain why that is in a bit. Romans 3, 10 through 18. This This is Paul's view of humanity. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That's very important. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is upon their lips. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's not a very flattering view of humanity. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. You were dead. That's important. I think I preached on this a few weeks ago in our resurrection stuff. Yes. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world. It's just this idea of this kind of helplessly following the ways of the world and the power of Satan. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of the disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature, here's what the Bible says, we are by nature. Our nature is who we fundamentally are, 
that we inherit, our DNA, our spiritual DNA. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He views all of mankind as children of wrath. Again, unflattering language. Now, we hear verses like that and we say, boy, that's not how I see things. Children of wrath, no one does good, not one. That's not how I view humanity, and that's precisely the point. That's not how you view humanity. That's not how I view humanity. But the Bible is asking, what is the view of humanity from um, the holy, exalted position of heaven? Yeah, to to you, compared to me, you're, you're pretty good people. That's not hard to beat, though. Compared to God... His standards, His holiness, his, his design for humanity, we are desperately sick. Total depravity does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. Sadly, it could be a lot worse than it is. When we talk about total depravity, when the Reformers talk about total depravity, they're saying two things. It's a defilement issue and it's a disposition issue. Defilement in this, we are totally depraved in that everything we do has the taint of sin about it. You cannot escape this. Everything that we do is tainted with sin. Even our tears of repentance need the blood of Christ, the Puritans would say. Everything we do, when you look at the motivations and the desires and what's behind that and the inner workings and the depths of it, everything we do is tainted with sin. So there's a defilement problem to total depravity. Total depravity means everything is depraved and the fact that it's it's defiled by sin. And there's a disposition problem. And this is this. We cannot and we will not choose God. Everything we do has the taint of sin about it. And our second problem is, by nature, we cannot, we will not choose God. What the fall did to humanity is turn us inward to worship and love ourselves, to choose ourselves over God, to be sinners. That's what the fall did. And that, that original sin that, that we all inherited is irresistible in every single one of us. We naturally don't want God. We naturally want what we want. We d- naturally do not want to submit to God. We naturally want to do what we want to do. We naturally don't want to honor and worship God. We naturally want to honor and worship ourselves. And so we have this disposition. We're dead. We're dead in trespasses and sins. A dead person can't choose God. A dead person is just dead in themselves. And so total depravity has two things to it. Defilement and disposition. Or you could say it like this. A judicial problem that cannot be overcome. Meaning you're a sinner. And justice demands punishment. So you got a judicial problem that cannot be overcome and a nature problem that cannot be overcome. Now, what are you or any of us going to do about it? This is why I'm a Calvinist. What are you going to do about that situation? If this is true, then the rest is true. We are, when we take our vows, we ask people... Do you admit that you are without hope except in his sovereign mercy? Do you admit that your problem is so bad, so depraved, that if God doesn't sovereignly do something, you are without hope? If total depravity is true, and I think the scriptures teach it, then that is the case. Predestination is God's response to our impossible situation. 
Predestination is God's only response to total depravity that will work. If depravity is going to be overcome, then God in his sovereign mercy is going to have to do something. And so all of fallen mankind waits. Will our God have mercy? And the glorious news of heaven is yes. He will have mercy. He will come for us. And that's what he does. Total depravity... Next is his first initiation, which is the decree of heaven, unconditional election. Election. That says election. If God is going to overcome the depravity of man, the fall of man, he's got to choose to do it. Okay? He has to choose to do it. It's his choice. It's his choice. He has chosen to do it. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Talking to Israel. You're a people that's holy. Wait a minute, I thought we were depraved. Aha. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth... It was not because, maybe you could say, well, okay, he chose us. However, however, it's because we're so lovely. I'm choosable. So therefore, since I'm so wonderful and choosable, it's really not election. It's, it's not, it's conditional election, right? It's conditional election. We believe in unconditional election. I'll put the un back up. Unconditional election. But this is what he says. I chose you to be my treasure possession. It was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord, that the Lord has set his love on you and chosen you. For you are the fewest of all people. It was because the Lord loves you. Why? I don't know. Just because he loved you. And he's keeping his oath that he swore, that he promised when he chose Abraham among everyone. That he has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. God chose us not because you were great, this great nation. Actually, the opposite is true, because you were the worst nation, so I'm going to get glory by saving the world through the worst nation. Matthew twenty two fourteen, Very simple. Many are called, few are chosen. That's from Jesus. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And that your fruit should abide. You didn't choose me. I chose you and I also chose you that you're going to end up bearing fruit. And that that fruit will last. In other words, I chose you from beginning to end. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Not according to my purpose, according to the purpose of his will. In him we have obtained inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. These are all the overflow of his will, his desire. Romans 8, 28-30. And we know that... For those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, how can we possibly know that? That's a breathtaking promise that we love to quote. How is it possible that we can be sure of that? He tells us. 
For those whom he foreknew, and the Arminian interpretation of that, that he foreknew that we would choose him, therefore he chose us, is wrong. It's foreknew knowledge like I forehad a relationship with you. I knew you before you were even created. I loved you before you were even created. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. I know all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Why? Because from beginning to end, he's in charge. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose you to believe the truth and be sanctified. Romans 9, 6 through 22, I'm not going to read that. We're going to look at it next week. It is the... It is the bed, It is Paul's teaching on the doctrine of election. You can look at it this week. I'll go, get into it next week. If total depravity is true, then this has to be true. If God has not chosen some and total depravity is true, then heaven would have none. It's the famous creed of Calvinism. If God had not chosen some, heaven would have none. But God has not handed all over to their depravity. In his sovereign mercy, he has chosen for himself a people. He has chosen for himself from eternity past a people. But God has two problems, and they're the problems of depravity. He has chosen for himself a people, but there is a defilement problem. Those people, everything they do is tainted with sin. And there's a disposition problem. The people he's chosen don't want him. So there's a defilement problem, we're sinners, and there's a disposition problem, we don't want God. Well... The sovereign Lord who has chosen for himself has a will in his sovereignty overcome that. And the next two points take care of that. So we're helpless. No way out of this. In his mercy, he has chosen for himself a people. Those people are, still have this about him. So he's got to fix this. Limited atonement fixes the judicial problem, the defilement problem. Irresistible grace fixes the we don't want him problem. In other words, he cleans us up, and then he makes us want him. That's how gracious, that's how sovereign he is in salvation. Limited atonement. I hate that word, limited, um, because I'm going to show you, I believe that Arminians actually limit the atonement of God. Um, I like particular atonement, or definite atonement, or perfect atonement, as I'm going to show you, but I I suppose two-dip wasn't as... uh, wasn't as good of an acronym as two-lip or two-pip. Wouldn't work, so they went with two-lip. Limited atonement. I'll explain what that means in a moment. Here's, here it is in a gist, and then, and then um, we'll look at Scripture. Total depravity. Out of that mass of depravity, God has chosen for himself a people. Now he must atone for his people. Those people are sinners. He must bleed for those people. He must clean those people. He must die for those people. Is that why Jesus came to die? Matthew 1, 21, the very beginning. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He came to save his people from their sins. 
Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His people. John 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. His people. Romans 8, 28, we know, I just said it, we know that all, for those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together. For those whom he foreknew, those people, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then he fixes the people. Those whom he predestined, he also calls. That's what we're going to get to here. He also calls. Those he calls, he justifies. He cleanses, he dies for. And then he also shall glorify them. His people he has died for. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Lay down his life for his church. That he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present his church to himself in splendor. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus died for his church, to purify his church, to purify his people. Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. You ransom people for God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The reason why people struggle so much with limited atonement, though when you really get into this, this is actually the easiest one to believe. It's the easiest one for me to believe. But the reason why people struggle with it so much is because there's so much world talk in the New Testament. For God so loved the world, right? The, the scandal of the New Testament is that the Messiah has come not just for Jews but Gentiles. Not just for Jews but for the world. And over and over again the apostles are having to tell them, Jesus has come not for you but for everyone. But when they're talking about the world, when they're talking about everyone, they're talking obviously about his people in the world. That's why Revelation 5, 9 has this world emphasis, but it says you've ransomed, you have ransomed, your blood has ransomed a people that is from every tongue, tribe, and nation. When you uncritically look at passages that speak about the atonement of Christ, you start seeing that Jesus died for his people, for his elect. Now, John Owen in his famous, um, in his famous work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ, How's that for a title? Um, he basically says, look, you've got three options. Um, Jesus died. We know that. And he died for people. Did Jesus die for some sins of all people? Did Jesus die for all, sin, for all sins... Of all people, did Jesus die for all sins of his people? People. Those are kind of the atonement options. Did he die for some sins of everyone? 
Did he die for all the sins of everyone, or did he die for all the sins of his people? And then Owen basically says, we can throw one out. I think we can all agree with that. If he has not died for, for um, all of our sins, then none are saved. And then he basically shows how option two leads to universalism, and it absolutely does. Did Jesus die for all sins of all people? If you say yes to that, please, please know everyone will be in glory. And it does lead to universalism. Because Jesus' blood is not spilt in vain. If Jesus died for sins, the sins are forgiven. To which the modern answer says, well, for all those who believe. And then Owen says, well, is not unbelief a sin? Is not unbelief a sin? It is the most heinous of sins. And if Jesus' blood atones for your unbelief, then you're in heaven. And he goes on this long excursion to show that if Jesus died for the world in the sense that his blood was spilt for the atonement of every sin ever committed, then every sinner will be in heaven. We have universalism, which Jesus clearly did not teach. Or he died for all the sins of his people. You have, a deprav- you have depravity, you have a chosen people, and then you have a Savior who comes to lay down his life for his people, his bride, his church. Here's the reality. We call it limited atonement, and I don't like that, because I don't think this limits atonement. We call it limit, a, limited atonement, but I think Arminians limit atonement. And here's how. If Jesus died... For everyone, for all the sins of all people, if he died for everyone, and not everyone is going to be in glory, then his atonement is limited by man. Is limited by man. His atonement is not as powerful as we think it is. His atonement cannot overcome our unbelief. But the blood of Jesus Christ is perfect. Every single sinner that Jesus died for is coming home will be in glory. It is the perfect atonement. It is the perfect sacrifice. Not one in this way alone, in perfect atonement, definite atonement, particular atonement, in this way alone, not one drop of blood is in vain. Every single person that Jesus died for will be saved. And so... The way it flows is you got people who are totally depraved. That's the condition of mankind. you got Jesus who chose for himself a people. And then you've got Jesus who dies for people. But we got another problem. Those people that God has chosen, that Jesus has come to atone for, they don't want Jesus. They don't want Jesus. They don't want his salvation. They want to be their own God. Well, um, irresistible grace overcomes that. Irresistible grace is about regeneration. It's about being born again. Here's the reality. Um, both parties... Um, do I have a racer? No. Yeah. I do? Where, am I, where is it? Oh, thank you. Both, here's the reality. You got God and you got man. For them to have a relationship, both parties have to want each other, okay? God has to choose man, and man has to choose God. And as a Calvinist, I believe that. The question of all questions is this. Who initiates? Who who, who chooses first? Did I choose God because God chose me? 
Or did God choose me because I chose God? Did I, was I converted? Was I awakened? Did I say, Jesus, I love you and choose you because from eternity past he ordained that that would happen? Therefore, he chose me first. Or does God wait to see who chooses to love him and he will then love them? It's an order of decrees. An irresistible grace says God chooses first. I choose God because God first chose me. Or, as the scriptures say, I love God because he first loved me. We love God because he loved first. Irresistible grace says that God is behind our choice of him. Our very real subjective choice. Very real subjective choice. I remember mine like it was yesterday. 18 years old at a Young Life camp, falling down on a bunk bed and giving myself to Jesus in the most real subjective choice like any other choice I make. And I believe that behind that was the providence of God who warmed my heart to give me a love for him, who opened my eyes to see his beauty, who opened my ears to hear his call. So, we, I'm, I'm an Arminian in saying, you must choose God. And I'll say that in that pulpit over and over again. You must choose God. I'm a Calvinist because I take it down one more level and believe this. If you do choose God, it was the irresistible grace at work in your life. So, I preach with the confidence of a Calvinist and the urgency of an Arminian is the way to preach. Call upon men to believe and to be saved and then trust that God will do that, that God is at work. And listen, everybody believes this. There's the old illustration of um, you come to the door of salvation with whosoever believes across the door. Or I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, open the door and I'll come in. So you approach the door of salvation with whosoever believes. And then when you enter, and everybody knows this, it happened in your life. When you enter the door of salvation, you turn around and on the back side of the door, it says, no one can come to me unless I draw them. On the back side of the door, on the other side, every single person says, that was God. <laughs> that wasn't me. I wasn't smarter than everybody else. I didn't figure something out. God did something. And we pray like Calvinists. God, save them. Wake them up. You do it. So behind our choices is irresistible grace. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10. Um, you know what? I'm not going to read that because it's such a long passage. Um, but you can go look at it. It's the famous Old Testament passage where basically God says, this is what it's like to be a prophet, Ezekiel. Go to that graveyard filled with dry bones and tell them to live. And he goes and he starts preaching a sermon to bones. And then as he's preaching, the Spirit of God comes and, and, and moves upon the bones and flesh fills in and then it turns into this great army of the Lord standing before him and essentially saying, that's what it's like to be a preacher. To stand and proclaim the word of the Lord and then wait for the Spirit of the Lord to make them come alive. Um, so you can read that. Um, also in Ezekiel 36, he says this, I will give them a new heart. This is conversion. This is being born again. I will give them a new heart and I will, give the, I will put my spirit within them. I will remove the stone of flesh, their heart of stone of flesh, and, and, and give them a heart of flesh. I will remove your stone from your flesh. I will give them a heart of flesh. I'll take out your bad heart. I'll give you a good heart. Take out your unbelief, give you belief. 
John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And for those of you who have been in this discussion before, you know that that Greek word draw is dragging, which is how I came into the kingdom of God. John 10, 26, you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. So Jesus says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then the reason why he says that that person isn't believing is because they're not a part of a sheep. Mark 4, 11 through 12, I preached on this. You can go back and listen to my sermon on it. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, tough, it's a tough passage. He said to them, tough passage for Western individuals, which goes back to my talk last week. He said to them, to you, speaking to his disciples, have been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside, everything is in parables. I talk in parables. Why? So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. They may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Do you know how crazy that passage is? That's in your Bible. I'm talking in parables so that they won't see my realities, so they won't hear my realities, because if they did, they would turn and be forgiven. You can go listen to my sermon on that. I'm glad that there's one online for that because it's a tough passage. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we're dead to God. He made us alive. Made us alive. Therefore, he can say, by grace you have been saved. And, and everybody says, well, what about faith? What about faith? What's the nature of faith? That's my choice. That's what I did. Paul says later on in that chapter, very famous verse, by grace you have been saved through faith. Oh, okay, so I chose God. And that faith is not your own doing. That was a gift of God. Not a result of work so that nobody can boast. Literally, nobody here can boast if you belong to Jesus because the very faith that you chose God was given as a gift by God. Acts 13, 48. I think this is just so compelling. I preached, my Easter sermon was on Paul's, uh, Paul's sermon in Acts 13 where he preaches the resurrection and all that stuff. And I didn't get to hear to it, but it just made me laugh when I'm preaching to probably a lot of um, unbelievers on Easter morning. Um, and I'm, I'm preaching through this. And the sermon ends this way in Acts 13, 48. Paul preaches, the Gentiles here, says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul preaches a sermon, and the way Acts describes it is, whoever was appointed to eternal, eternal life believed. You do not choose because you and yourself choose. You do choose, but behind your choice is God's work. There's a song um, by the Civil Wars that talks about love, the intricacies of love, and it's this line that I thought, well, that, that nails it. Where the person says, I don't have a choice, but I still choose you. I'm in love. You've captured my heart. I don't have a choice here. You've won me over, but I still choose you. That's the way it worked. Both parties make a choice whose choice initiates. Irresistible grace says that God is behind our choice for him. I got two minutes. Um, hmm. All right. Okay, let's do it. Let's try it. All right, pers perseverance of the saints. Um, we, we might go a little bit over five. Um, 
you know what, the reason I can do this, because honestly, this is the one, um, the Armenian Baptist culture that, that we live in, this is actually the only one that they, 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 they affirm, right? Um, the, the, the Baptistic tradition is all about once saved, always saved, which I, I'm thankful for because I agree with that. Um, perseverance of saints. So, mass of total depravity, chooses for himself a people, dies for those people, gives those people faith and love of him. Okay, they love him, they've been died for, are they going to continue on to glory? And the Bible says, yes, you will persevere. Those who have been chosen, who have been died for, those who have come alive in Jesus will persevere. Perseverance of saints. John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who, draw, who sent me draws him. We already looked at that. And then he promises, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 10, 28, 29, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than everyone. And that includes you, believer. He's stronger than you. He's greater than anyone. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Romans 8, 34 through 39, after his, his teaching on predestination, he concludes it by saying, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Are you going to be undo that golden chain of those whom he called, he, those whom he called, predestined, he called, he called, he justifies, those he justifies, he glorified. He said, can you stop that process? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day, regard as sheep of slaughter. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, powers, heights, depth, and just in case he missed something, anything else in all the creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that includes you, Christian. Ephesians 1, in him you were... 13 through 14, in him, you who heard the word of truth, you gospel of your salvation and believed in him, irresistible grace, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it. Um, uh, let's see, what's, no, I'll give you one more. Um, uh, 1 John 2, they went out. This is, so what about the people who, um, okay, what about the people who seem to have come alive, who, who, con, who confess their um, belief in the atonement, and then they fall away. First John tells us, they went away from us, this is First John 2, 19, they went away from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. In other words, their rebellion, their apostasy was sign that they never were truly raised from the dead. They never were truly converted. So even those who fall away, the scriptures would say, that happened because they weren't truly among us. They were hypocrites, which he promises will happen in the church. Okay, um, perseverance of saints, all it's saying is, if God's done all that, you can settle down. He's going to do this. You're fine. And that's the beauty of sovereign Calvinism election. Let it turn into a beautiful doctrine. I know your mind, if you, if you weren't there last week, or if you were, that, were there last week and your mind's immediately going to objections, go back and listen to it, because I know your mind right now is starting to ask your Western individualistic questions. Well, why not that person? Does he choose? Da, 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 da. Stop. Just rest in the beauty of sovereign grace that he has loved you before the foundation of the world, that he set his affections on you, that he died for you, that he raised you from the dead, and he will see you to the end. And let's honor the Lord of grace. Let me pray. Lord, thank you, and we trust your grace alone. 
If it were on us, it would never happen. But you have overcome the impossible. When Peter said, how can man be saved? You said, with man it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. Thank you that you have overcome the impossible and that you have set your love, you have decreed that you must have us. Praise your name. Father, for eternity past, decreeing. Praise your name, Son of God, for coming to save those whom God has chosen. Praise your name, Holy Spirit, for awaking the dead and persevering in our lives to the end. Triune God, involved in our salvation, we praise your name and we thank you humbly. Thank you. In your name. Amen.